It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. This morning we are going to start studying through the book of Romans, and the book of Romans is one of my uh, favorite books of the Bible, and it's also one of the most important books uh, for us to understand. Uh, Martin Luther said this about Romans, this epistle is the chief book of the New Testament, the purest gospel. It deserves not only to be known word for word by every Christian, but to be the subject of his meditation day by day, the daily bread of his soul. John Calvin said of the book of Romans, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. Samuel Coolridge said, Paul's letter to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. G. Campbell Morgan said, Romans is the most pessimistic page of literature on which your eyes ever rested, and at the same time, the most optimistic poem to which your ears ever listened. And finally, Chuck Swindoll said, Romans is no light snack for the soul. It's a full course meal meant to be savored over time. It beckons the mind to stretch, the heart to soar, and the soul to sing. Romans is one of the most deep and profound books in all of scripture, and it answers some of the, the deepest questions that skeptics have and that Christians have. I'm sure you've come across skeptics with Questions like this, is Jesus really God? How can a loving God send people to hell? How can a person who has never heard the gospel be spiritually responsible? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil in the world? These are questions that the skeptics constantly throw at us as Christians. And the book of Romans gives us answers to these deep and profound questions. But you know what? As Christians... We have a lot of questions as well. And as we come to this book, here are some questions that we as Christians might ask that it will answer for us. Like, why do people reject God and his son, Jesus Christ? Why are there false religions and idols? How can a sinner be forgiven and justified by God? How can people find real peace and hope? What is grace and what does it do? How are God's grace and God's law related? What is the importance of Christ's death, Christ's resurrection to us? What is God's past, present, and future plan for the nation of Israel? Why is living a faithful Christian life such a struggle? What does the Holy Spirit do for a believer? How secure is a believer in salvation? These are just a few of the many deep questions that the book of Romans will answer for us. And so it's an essential book for us to study, an essential book for us to understand and apply to our lives. It's almost universally agreed that Paul wrote the book of Romans on his third missionary journey while he was in Corinth uh, at about 57 AD. Now, something unique about this letter is that Paul had not yet been to Rome. If you look at all of Paul's letters that he wrote besides the book of Romans, he either planted the church or was already been there before. And so this is a unique letter in the fact that he's writing to a group that he doesn't know. He's writing to a church that he didn't start, that he's never been to before. And Paul planned on going to Rome But he wasn't sure that he was ever actually going to make it there because on uh, a point in his life, he's heading to Jerusalem and he's told some news that made him reconsider the reality that he would ever make it to Rome. And that news is found to us in Acts chapter 21, verses 10 through 14. We're told this. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, 
Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when they could not persuade him, we cease saying, the will of the Lord be done. So the Holy Spirit, through this prophet named Agabus, reveals some news to Paul. When you get to, Rome, to sorry, Jerusalem, you are going to be bound. You are going to be turned over to the Gentiles. You know, that's not good news. The people are trying to say, don't go, Paul, don't go. And he says, you know, why are you weeping and, and doing this? You know, I'm ready to die for the Lord. This isn't going to keep me from Jerusalem. But the thing that it did make Paul aware of is the reality that, you know what? I haven't made it to Rome, and I might not. Jerusalem might be the end for me. When I get there, this might be it. This warning that the Holy Spirit has given to me, you know, Paul wasn't sure if he was going to make it past Jerusalem. And so now he's thinking, you know what? I want to write to the Romans and I might never get to see them in person. I might never get to proclaim the gospel to them in person. And so I need to write a letter that's so comprehensive that they can understand who I am, the message that I preach, even though I might not be able to go there and be with them in person. And because of all this, the book of Romans is different than all of the other letters that Paul wrote to churches. The other letters focus more on the church and the challenges and the problems that individual church had, and Paul is addressing those things. But the letter to the Romans focuses more on God and his great plan of redemption. Romans is the most in-depth and instructive letter in the Bible dealing with God's plan of redemption for mankind. It's the most in-depth and instructive letter on the issue of salvation and all that's connected with it. And because this book is so important to the topic of salvation, it has impacted more people towards salvation than any other book in the Bible. F.F. Bruce said this, Romans has liberated the minds of men and has brought them back to an understanding of the essential gospel of Christ and has started spiritual revolutions. Wherever the message of Romans is eagerly received, startling events take place, hearts are changed, spiritual revivals explode, whole churches, cities, and institutions are rocked on their foundations. You know, throughout church history, as you study it, you find a great connection to the book of Romans with great revival. It was the book of Romans that Martin Luther proclaimed uh, that men and women are justified by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it was this that ultimately started the Protestant Reformation, a huge revival that moved through the world. It was the book of Romans that uh, John Wesley, it led him to salvation and also uh, brought revival and renewal that spread through England and all the way here to America. You can see time and time again, the book of Romans brings people to a place of recognizing what salvation is all about and brings a wonderful transformation in the culture. And it's my prayer that as we study through this book, that God would do amazing things in and through us and in and through our community as we reach out to it. Now, before we start this letter, as I do with you know the different uh, books that we start, I want to give you uh, a basic outline to kind of give you a perspective of where we're going and the main things that we're going to be covering. Uh, and since this is such a deep book, I could give you a super detailed outline, but I've just given you something simple, just dealing with five major themes that the book of Romans deals with. And as all of Paul's letters, he starts with his introduction. That's the first 17 verses, which we will <clears throat> cover this morning. And then Paul deals with five main themes in this letter, which all have a connection with salvation. Paul first spends three chapters dealing with sin. Paul reveals in great detail the fact that all of us are sinners, that all of us are going to receive the wrath of God upon us. So in these verses, Paul reveals to us God's holiness in condemning sin and the need of salvation. Second, Paul spends three chapters dealing with salvation, that we are saved by grace through faith alone. And Paul's going to reveal the reality of God's grace in justifying sinners and the way of salvation. 
Third, Paul spends three chapters dealing with sanctification, the the process of being dedicated to God, to be separated from the things of the world and set apart to the things of God. And and Paul's going to reveal God's power in sanctifying believers and the life of salvation. Fourth, Paul spends three chapters dealing with sovereignty. God's, he's going to show us God's plan for Israel. That he's not done with them yet. He has a past plan, a present plan, a future plan. But also in his sovereignty, he's able to save both Jew and Gentile together. And so in this section, we're going to see God's sovereignty in saving Jews and Gentiles in the scope of salvation. And fifth, Paul spends three chapters dealing with service. So he starts with these four great things. They're all doctrinal. They're all so important. And then he finishes the letter more practical. What are ways in which we can serve God? And so he's going to share with us God's glory that is demonstrated through our service and the service of salvation. And he's going to conclude the letter with some final greetings and some final challenges. And as you note here, Paul has a balanced approach here. Three chapters for each one of these five major themes is dedicated here and we get some great wonderful truth for all of these things and so I'm very excited to go through this book with you. So let's start this morning looking at the introduction and you know as you go through letters of the Bible especially Paul's letter he gives an introduction to each one but for me personally this is my favorite this is one of the most um deep and profound introductions, remembering that Paul's never been here. He doesn't know these people, so I think he he spends a little more time kind of sharing about himself in order to connect with this group of Romans. So let's see what Paul has to share with us. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel. Paul starts off here with an introduction of himself. Hey, you know what, guys? I've never been to you, so now I want to reveal some things to you about who I am, about what makes me tick, about you know what God has called me to do. And so he shares these three defining aspects of who he is. Paul's first defining aspect is that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, the, the Greek word here that is used to translate bondservant is doulos, and it means one who is in a permanent relation of servitude to another, his will altogether consumed in the will of the other. It speaks of someone who willingly chose to be a slave for the rest of his life. In the book of Exodus in chapter 21, we have the details surrounding how someone could become a bondservant. Because unlike the Roman Empire, uh, Empire, sorry, with the Jews, you would only be a slave for six years. After six years, God's law required that all slaves had to be freed. And so you would be a slave for six years and then you'd be freed. But if you loved your master and you wanted to continue to be in that servant-master relationship, you could come to that master and choose to be a bondservant. It was your choice, not the master's choice on your behalf, and you would be choosing to say, I am going to serve you for the rest of my life. I know it's the sixth year, I know I can be freed, but I want to be your servant for life, and you could do that, and you were referred to as a bondservant, someone who willingly chose to serve their master for life. And so as Paul calls himself a bondservant, he's taking this picture from Exodus chapter 21 and using that in his relationship with Jesus Christ saying, I have willingly chosen to serve my master Jesus for the rest of my life. What a wonderful defining aspect that was for Paul. And it's something that every believer should have as a defining aspect for our life, that we willingly choose to serve and obey the will of our master, Jesus Christ. You know, if you were to write a letter this morning and you were to describe yourself as you introduce yourself in that letter, could you honestly describe yourself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ? I I truly am someone who is willingly serving and giving my life completely to my master, Jesus If the answer is no, what's stopping you? What's keeping you from serving Jesus, from giving your life completely to him? He's the one deserving of it. 
you know, we're told something in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that should really help us rethink maybe the, some of the ways in which we view the master Jesus and us, the servant. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So often we live our life like we're the master, like we own ourselves. You see it in the choices that we make, the direction that we go, the selfishness that you know is so pervasive in our life. We're the masters. We own ourselves. We'll do what we want. But that goes so against what the Bible says. We're not the master. Jesus is. We don't own ourselves anymore. He does. We were bought, we're told, at the most expensive price of all. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to give his life to buy us back to him. We were bought at this price. Now we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. He purchased us with his blood. He's the master. We're the servant. Our response should be for all that God has done, Lord, I want to glorify you in my body and in my spirit, which are yours. It's yours. It no longer belongs to me. I'm no longer the master. I relinquish that to you. You are now the master. You are the one who's in charge. You see, the reality is that God purchased you and he desires us to recognize that and respond with this bondservant choice, this willingness to make ourselves a servant of Jesus Christ. The second defining aspect that Paul shares about himself is he's called to be an apostle. This word apostle means a messenger, one sent forth with orders. We often think of you know the, the 12 and the role that they had within the early church. But the key thing here that Paul shares is he's called to be an apostle. This word called means to be invited or divinely selected and appointed. Notice it wasn't Paul who made himself an apostle. He didn't just decide one day, you know what, I want to be an apostle. It looks great that like Peter and James and, and John, I mean, those guys really got it made. I'm going to make myself one of them as well. You don't make yourself an apostle. You don't call yourself into some kind of ministry role. That's something completely on God's end. He's the one who calls. He's the one who appoints. And Paul wants to make very clear, hey, I haven't done this for myself. I haven't made myself this. This is something that God has appointed me to, that God has called me to. You know, I used to look at Paul's calling and think, wow, an apostle, that is the best calling there is. If everyone could just be an apostle, this world would be so much better. And you know what? I came to the recognition that's not true. The best calling is not an apostle. The best calling is whatever God has called you to be. When you try to be something God hasn't called you to be, when you try to do something God hasn't called you to do, that's when problems arise. That's when difficulties come because the best calling is to be in the will of God doing what he has called you to do. And you know what? We often think, well, that's only full-time ministry things and God just calls people to be pastors or worship leaders and he does call people into that but he also calls people to be secretaries and teachers and lawyers and realtors and doctors and you know he calls people into different spheres of life to influence the entire world and we need to recognize wherever God has called me to be that's the best place for me to be and I want to fulfill my calling to the best of my ability. You know, if you're here this morning, you're thinking, I don't have a clue what God is calling me to. You know what? He's not trying to keep it a secret. Pray, seek him, ask him, Lord, reveal to me, what is it you want me to do with my life? What have you gifted me and where are you directing me? How do you want to use me? He wants you to know that. He wants to do things in and through you. And so if you're kind of like, I don't really know what my calling is, where I'm supposed to be, seek the Lord. Ask him to reveal it to you. He will. The third defining aspect that Paul shares is he was separated to the gospel of God. The word here, uh, separated, means to be set apart for a certain purpose. And the purpose that Paul was set apart for was to declare the gospel, to proclaim it 
to those who needed to hear it. But notice Paul's emphasis here. We're going to see something throughout this letter. He says the gospel of God. You know, throughout Romans, God, God, God is going to be this huge emphasis and focus. Actually, Henry Morris says this about the word God in this letter. God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. And our concern to understand what the apostle is saying about righteousness, justification, and the like, we ought to not overlook his tremendous concentration on God. You know, the word God in the book of Romans is used 153 times. On average, that's once every 46 word. Way more times than any other letter in Scripture. The next word that's repeated the most is 72 times. So he doubles it with God. This is a a letter, really, we see sin and, and salvation and sanctification and all these things. But ultimately, within all of those, the real emphasis is God and what he's doing and how he's making all of this possible. And so don't forget and don't miss, God is really the most important Word and the most important subject in this letter. So Paul starts this letter sharing three defining aspects of who he is. He's a bondservant. He has willingly chosen to serve Jesus for the rest of his life. He is called by God, not himself, to be an apostle, and he's separated to the gospel. Well, now Paul's going to share some important things about this gospel that he's separated to in verses 2 through 4 which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You know, Paul wants the Romans to understand something. This message that he has been declaring, remember, he hasn't yet been able to come to them and share the gospel with them and and share these things in person. And he wants them to understand this isn't something new. This isn't something that he's come up with or made up. This is something that God has established. It's the same gospel that was promised by the Old Testament prophets. It's the same gospel that we see throughout the Old Testament. This isn't something new. This is something that God has been continuing revealing, and he's just continuing the good news of what God has shared. And he brings out two very important things about Jesus as well. In his gospel, Jesus is both man and God. Jesus was man because he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and Jesus proved he was God by rising from the dead. That's why Paul says, declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Such two very vital things within our understanding of who Jesus is. And you see cults who will say, Jesus was only God but not man, or only man and not God. But the Bible makes very clear, he's 100% God, 100% man. These are two vital things to grasp about who Jesus is. And Paul declared that clearly through his gospel. But he wants them to understand, hey, this isn't something new. This isn't something I made up. I'm just continuing to share the truth of the gospel that God has established and that he has proclaimed throughout his word. So now that Paul has shared these three defining aspects of his life and the gospel that he preaches, he's going to reveal how he has received this wonderful calling and this wonderful role as an apostle. Verses 5 and 6. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul brings out an important truth here. Jesus gave him all that he needed to be obedient to his calling. And it was through Jesus that Paul received grace for apostleship and obedience to Christ. Jesus gave him the ability to be what he was and to accomplish what he was called to do. But notice Paul goes on to say, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Guess what, guys? It's not just me 
that Jesus gives the ability to accomplish what he's called me to do, he's given it to you as well. He's given you the ability to accomplish the calling that he has for your life, just like he's given it to me. And I think this is something so important for us to remember as we look at what God has called us to do, whatever sphere of influence, whatever role, whatever God has called you to do, remember, he will also give you all you need to accomplish that. And I think too often we forget that or we don't believe that and we get afraid to trust God, afraid to step out and say, God, I know you've called me to do this and so I'm going to follow you, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to step out and do what you've called me to do. But sometimes we're not willing because we don't truly believe, you know what, since you've called me, I believe you'll give me what I need to accomplish it. I remember, you know, being kind of struck with a lot of fear. I was 23 years old. God called me clearly and made it very clear to start a church in Scotland. And I felt overwhelmed with the reality of that. And, you know, there was fear and there was all these things that God kept doing to, you know, just reassure me, hey, I'm calling you to this. I've given you this and I am going to give you everything you need to accomplish that. And I had to trust that. And say, all right, I'm going to take a step of faith. I'm going to go and I'm going to do this trusting that you will give me what I need because it seems pretty overwhelming. I don't feel equipped for this. And God just reminded me, I'll give you what you need. And he did. When I came here to Pasadena, the same thing. He always gives us what we need to accomplish what he's called us to do. He'll do that for Paul. He does that for me. He does that for you. And we just need to trust that, believe that, and be willing to step out in faith when God leads us. Well, now Paul's going to share who this letters to, verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's specifically writing to believers in Rome. He says all are in Rome, but then he defines it, beloved of God, called to be saints. Those are ones who have accepted Christ. He's writing to this church there in Rome. And then he gives his you know, um, common greeting, both combining the, the Greek greeting of grace with the uh, Hebrew greeting of peace uh, and just bringing them together. But notice it's not just his, hey, grace and peace, kind of like you know people would say now, but notice what it's connected to. They are gifts coming from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are grace and peace from God, which is far more than just, hey, grace from me or peace from me. No, grace and peace from God be with you. Well, now that Paul has shared a bit about himself and who this letter is written to, He's going to share something that would be very important for these readers to know, which is his great desire to come and see them in person. Notice what he says in verse 8 through 10. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come and see you. Paul brings up two things that he's really, you know, thankful for and that he wants these, you know, uh, Roman believers to understand. First, he tells them, hey, you know what? I am so thankful for you guys and specifically that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. I'm here in Corinth and I'm hearing about you Romans and your faith in God and it just brings me joy and I'm so grateful that you're living for the Lord in such a way that it's spreading through the world, that people are hearing about it. But you know what? I also want you to know I have desperately wanted to come and see you. He says, For God is my witness that without ceasing I pray for you and I make requests to come to you. You know, I think Paul kind of feels a little bit like he's on trial. And he wants them to know, hey, God's my witness. I have wanted to come to you. I have longed to see you. I I desperately want to be there in Rome. And I think he shares this and wants them to know God is his witness in this. Because if you put yourself in the Roman shoes, Rome's the superpower. At that time, we're told all roads lead to Rome. You might think, Paul, if you're going to go anywhere and plant a church, why don't you come to Rome? I mean, so many people come here, and I'm sure that there were believers there who were thinking, why haven't you come here? What's wrong with us? I mean, you go all these other places. You've taken three missionary journeys, and not once have you come to Rome. Well, Paul wants them to know, oh, I've wanted to come. I've desired to come. God's my witness that I want to be there face to face 
with you. He, he wants them to understand that, but also even more, he wants them to understand what stopped him. I've wanted to be there, but obviously I haven't been there. So what has kept me from coming? He says in verse 10, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Notice the reason Paul gives for why he hasn't come to Rome yet. The reason is because it hasn't been in the will of God for him to do it. You see, Paul's will and Paul's desire is, I want to get to Rome. I want to come there. I want to proclaim the gospel there. I want to encourage the church there. But you know what? Up till now, that hasn't been God's will. That hasn't been what God wants. That hasn't been the timing of God for me. You know, in verse 1, Paul revealed he was a bondservant of Christ. He chose to say, you know what? God, I'm your servant. You're the master. Your will is what I will follow. And we see this here. You know what? I didn't, you know, supersede God's will and say, you know what? Forget you, God. I want to go to Rome. I'm going. You might want me somewhere else. You might have me somewhere else, but I want to go there. So it's my will that I'm going to pursue. And I'm headed to Rome, whether you want me to or not. Paul's saying, no, the reason I haven't come is because it hasn't been in the will of God. And I've been following God's will, not my own. I think this is a big challenge for you and me because each one of us battle on a daily basis with our will and what we want to do versus God's will and what he wants us to do. That's a struggle for us. You know, am I going to do my desire and my will or am I going to submit myself to God's desire and his will for my life? When your will and your desire is different than the will of God's, how do you respond? Do you allow your will and your desire to get in the way of doing what God desires you to do? You know, there have been many times in my life where I'm sure you could say as well, I haven't been willing to do the will of God. Clearly know it, clearly understand it, but I have a different will, a different desire, and I pursued that instead and just said, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to do what you want in this area of my life. I've done that many times. But you know what? There has never been a time in my life where I did my will instead of God's will and looked back and said, man, I'm so glad I did that. I'm so glad I didn't do God's will. I'm so glad I pursued my own thing. I did it my way, Frank Sinatra. But you know what? No, it's not I did it my way and I'm so pleased. I look at, I did it my way and I'm such an idiot. Why didn't I just do what God wanted? I would have been so much better off. You know, in 2017, I personally had a battle with my will versus God's will with regard to a building for our church. I want a building. I desire that. I think it'd be great for us to have our own place and what God can do through that. And, you know, we've looked at a lot of different places and, you know, put even an offer on one and, you know, just different things, doors closed and, you know, just kind of, Lord, come on, surely your timing is our timing. Let's go. Let's get, let's do this. Uh, and, you know, the Lord just keep having to remind me, hey, my will, my timing, submit to it. And I know what you desire. I know what you want, but be patient and trust in me. And, and it can be difficult for us. There's times when doors are closed and we want to kick them down and we just need to trust the Lord. We need to pray and we need to just seek his will, not our own. When God's will and God's timing is different than yours, respond with prayer and trust. So Paul greatly desires to go to Rome, but notice he shares what he wants to do if he ever has the privilege of actually getting there in verses 11 through 13. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me, now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. Notice here, Paul's saying, you know, I want to get to you guys in Rome. Not because you have such a big city with all these wonderful things, and you could do so much for me, and you could offer so much to me, and there's so many wonderful things that I can get in Rome that I can't get in Jerusalem, and, and wow, wouldn't it be great to be in Rome and how you guys serve me and give to me, and, and I could get so much from you. That's not his desire at all. 
I want to come not to get from you, but to give to you. I want to encourage you. I want to build you up. I want to have fruit, as he says, among you. My desire is to come so the Lord would use me to bless you, to serve you, not for what you can do for me. And I think, once again, a good challenge for us as we, you know, seek to minister or just around people, you know, what's our thought process? Am I going into this group of people for what they can give to me? Or I say, you know what, I'm here for what I can give. I want to serve. I want to be used by God to offer what I have to bless others. Or is it like, well, I'm around you for what you can give me, and, and I'm around you for what I can get from you. And, you know, that shouldn't be our heart. It wasn't the heart of Paul, it definitely wasn't the heart of Jesus, and it shouldn't be ours either. We should be seeking to serve others and give what we have to bless them. So far in this interjection, Paul shares three defining aspects of his life. He shared his great desire to go to Rome and be a blessing and encouragement to them. And now Paul's going to conclude this introduction with three statements about himself. These are uh, referred to as the I am statements of Paul because he uses that term I am with it. And let's see what he has to say about himself in verses 14 through 17. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The first I am statement that Paul gives to us is, I am a debtor. You know, the word debtor means one who owes another, one held by some obligation and bound by some duty. So who is it that Paul feels like, you know, I'm indebted to, that I owe, that I have a duty towards? Well, he says barbarians, Greeks, wise and unwise. Basically, he's listing everyone. You know, I have a, I, I'm a debtor to everyone. I owe everyone. I'm bound to a duty to everyone. You know, when you look at Paul's life, he was a tireless evangelist who traveled through all these different missionary journeys because within him he felt a responsibility, a duty, a debt to people who don't know the truth of the gospel to be the one to get out there and proclaim it to them, to share it with them. And you know what? It wasn't just something one day that he woke up and said, you know what? I have a duty to this world to share the gospel. It was something that Jesus had given to him. Something that Jesus had called him to do. But you know what? We look and say, wow, Paul, that's so amazing. Look at all those missionary journeys you did. Look at how you were so faithful to go out and proclaim the world for Jesus. Thank goodness there's people like you. Then I don't have to do it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. You know what? Jesus didn't just give Paul this duty and debt. He gave it to us as well. Mark 16, 15, and Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus has given every single believer the duty, the debt to go and proclaim the gospel to the world that desperately needs it. I think a great question for us is, are we fulfilling our duty and paying our debt to reach people with the gospel? Paul's first statement is, I am a debtor ultimately to everyone. And in verse 15, Paul gives us the second I am statement about himself. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul's second I am statement is, I am ready to preach the gospel. You know, this is He's writing this now as he's on his third missionary journey. He's already been on two, and he's done part of a third. Paul was someone who readily went around proclaiming the gospel, but he has yet to be able to go to Rome, but he wants them to know, I'm ready to do it. If God were to call me to Rome tomorrow, I'd be there, and I'd be proclaiming the gospel to you because I'm ready to do it. And I think this is something significant to note because at this point in time, one of the most ungodly and anti-Christian places there was is Rome. I mean, if you want to go to a place where people are not going to want to hear what you have to say and probably be quite hostile to you, and if you look through history and Nero and what he did to Christians, we see Rome was a brutal place to be someone who wants to and ready to proclaim the gospel. 
William Newell said this about Paul being willing to preach the gospel in Rome. Talk of your brave men, your great men, O world, where in all history you can find one like Paul. Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon marched with the protection of their armies to enforce their will upon men. Paul was eager to march with Christ alone to the center of this world's greatness, entrenched under Satan with the word of the cross, which he himself says is to the Jews an offense and to the Gentiles foolishness. Paul's willing to walk into the lion's den, so to speak, and say, you know what? I don't care how hostile they are. I mean, imagine, you know, we see in one of his missionary journeys, they take him outside the city, throw stones at him, think he's dead. He gets back up. He doesn't leave. What does he do? He walks straight back in there and keeps proclaiming the gospel. Here's a man who is driven and ready to proclaim the gospel, no matter how dangerous or how hostile the place may be. What a wonderful statement to be able to be made about yourself. Are you ready to preach the gospel? Wherever you're at, whomever God brings in your life, would you be able to make that statement? I'm ready to proclaim it and I'm willing to do it. Are you ready to preach the gospel at your workplace? Are you ready to preach the gospel to your family and friends? Are you ready to preach the gospel to your neighbors? You know, I found that if you're not ready to preach the gospel, when the opportunity presents itself, which it will, you won't take it. You need to be ready. You might think, well, I think I might be, you know, but it comes and, oh, well, I'll wait till next time. Or, oh, and, you know, and we make some kind of excuse. We, we got to be ready if we're going to seize the opportunity that the Lord opens for us to proclaim the good news to others. Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't just ready to preach the gospel. He was ready to do more than that. In Acts chapter 21, verse 13, we're told Paul was ready to suffer for the gospel. 2 Timothy 4, 6, we're told that Paul was ready to die for the gospel. Paul was ready, no matter what, to get the gospel out. If it meant suffering, I'm still going to do it. If it meant death, I'm still going to do it. Are we ready to preach the gospel no matter what the cost? Now, you might ask the question, why, Paul? <laughs> why are you willing to go through so much, even death, for this message? Why is it so important? Why are you risking your life for it? Well, in verses 16 and 17, Paul answers that question. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul's third I am statement is, I am not ashamed of the gospel. One of the reasons Paul was willing to share the gospel, no matter how difficult, no matter how hostile, no matter if it meant suffering, no matter if it meant death, was for the reality that he was not ashamed of the gospel. You know, one of the biggest reasons we're not willing to share the gospel is because we're ashamed. We're ashamed of what people might think about us or, or might say about us. Oh, I can't share the gospel with my coworker or, or with my neighbors. I mean, what might they think of me? What might they say about me if I do something like that? Some are ashamed of how they'll be treated for sharing the gospel. I mean, if I share the gospel at school, if I share the gospel with my friends, I mean, I could be rejected, I could be persecuted. I mean, how might I be treated if I proclaim that message? You know, this world thinks the gospel is foolishness, it thinks it's useless. And sometimes, you know, we respond with, oh, I can't share the gospel with people in this world. They'll think I'm an idiot. I mean, this is a, a message that they belittle. Surely I don't want to be the mouthpiece for that. I want you to be honest with yourself and ask yourself the question, am I ashamed of the gospel? Now, as believers, we know that we shouldn't be. But the real way to answer that question is when opportunities arise that God places before you, unbelievers are in your path, you have the opportunity to share the gospel with them, do you do it or not? And if the answer is no, then I think you really need to be honest and search your heart and say, why am I not doing this? Am I ashamed of the gospel? Am I ashamed of this message? Am I fearful of something? What's keeping me from boldly proclaiming this good news to people who if they don't hear it are going to die and go to hell? 
You know, there was a time in my Christian life where someone challenged me with this, and I said, of course I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But you know what? There were time and time and time where people were presented before me, and I wouldn't share it, and I had to come to the honest realization that, yes, I was. Lord, help me to change. Help me to be more concerned about their eternity than how they might feel about me in the present. Help me to be more concerned about their eternity than how they might treat me or how they might speak of me. Lord, help me to realize the importance of this message and not keep it to myself. Well, why? Why wasn't Paul ashamed of the gospel? He shares with us two very powerful things. Paul tells us the reason he isn't ashamed of the gospel is because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. You know, these two statements are pretty much a summary of this letter. And throughout the rest of this letter, Paul's going to go into great detail explaining both of these things. But he brings us to this reality. Why am I not ashamed? Well, first of all, it's because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Henry Morris said this about the gospel being the power of God. The gospel is certainly good news, but it is more than information. It has inherent power. The gospel is not advice to people suggesting that they lift themselves. It is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say the gospel brings power, but that it is power and God's power at that. You know, this is very interesting, especially Paul is going to a place that thought it was the most powerful place on the planet because it was the superpower of the day, which was Rome. And in our day-to-day America, we feel that we are so powerful because we are the superpower of the world. But just like in Rome and just like with us today in America, we need to recognize that we have no power to save ourselves. The Romans thought they were so powerful. They could conquer nations, but you know what? They couldn't deal with their own sin. They did not have the power to save themselves from their sin. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to save a person from their sin. Nothing else has that power. Nothing else can save you. Nothing else can bring you into relationship with God. Nothing else can get you to heaven. Jesus makes very clear in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, not some, no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, we live in a culture where people want to believe there's all these different paths to God, all these different ways to heaven, all these different ways to salvation. And Jesus makes very clear that isn't true. There's only one way, one way to be saved, one way to be forgiven, one way to have a relationship with God, one way to get to heaven And that is through placing your faith in Jesus Christ, who he is, that he is God, and what he has done, that he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the only way for you and I to be saved. You know, the religion is the story of what a sinful man tries to do for a holy God, and there is no power in that to save you. You look around, so many people, they're trying by their works, these good works, I'm going to do enough to be saved, I'm going to do enough to be accepted, I'm going to do enough to get to heaven, but the reality is, you can never do enough. That can't save you. The gospel is the story of what a holy God has done for sinful man, and it's the only message with the power to save lost sinners. So first, the gospel is the power of God to save sinful people but in the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed ray pritchard said this about god's righteousness being revealed in the gospel here is where the greatness of the gospel is clearly seen it provides for us what we can never provide for ourselves on our own merits we all stand condemned before the almighty who is there who would dare to say i'm good enough to go to heaven As someone has said, a clear conscience is the result of a poor memory. None of us are good enough. The only people who think they're good enough to go to heaven are the people who don't know how bad they really are. Righteousness is what we need, but do not have. Therefore, God, knowing that we could never be righteous on our own, has provided a righteousness which comes down to us from heaven above. It's not earned or deserved, but is given to us by God as a free gift. The gospel reveals to us how you and I can be righteous before God. 
You know, so many people think, well, the way to be righteous before God is to do all these good works. But that's not what makes us righteous. There's only one way to be righteous, and that is to place your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you. That he paid for your sin to make it possible for you to be forgiven, to make it possible for you to be right with God. Paul brings up these two things to say, you know what, because the gospel has the power of God, because in it the righteousness of God is clearly portrayed, that's why I'm not ashamed of it. That's why I'm willing to suffer for it. That's why I'm willing to die for it. Because it's the only message with power enough to save people's lives for all eternity. And so I am going to declare that message as long as I have breath to do it. In this introduction, Paul shares with us three defining aspects of his life and three I am statements about himself. And all six of these things are just a great example for us. Things that God would desire each one of us to do as well. We should be bondservants. Willingly choosing to say, Lord, you are the master and I choose to serve you with my life. We should step out in faith and do whatever God has called us to do. We should be separated to the gospel. We should be recognized that because God has called us to go into the world and proclaim the gospel, we are debtors. We have a duty to get out there and share the good news with those who don't know it. We should be ready to preach the gospel to anyone in any place. And we should not be ashamed of it because it's the only message with the power from God to save lives. This world needs more people like Paul who follows God's calling and is always ready to preach the gospel. And I would encourage you, pray that God would help you to be someone like that. Pray that God would give you that boldness to always be ready to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And I want to give you a challenge this week to put into practice. And the challenge is pick one person, one person that you know that does not know Jesus Christ, that has not accepted him as their savior. It could be a family member. It could be a neighbor. It could be a coworker. I'm confident each one of us knows someone in our life that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And even if you know they've heard the message before, I encourage you this week at some point in time, start by praying for God, to God to open up a door for you and share the gospel with them. And watch what God will do. Let's see what God will do. If all of us share with one person this week the gospel message, the one that has the power to save lives, let's see how God will move and impact people.